Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Today's episode reflects on Clayton Christensen. And this guy was a Harvard Business School professor. He was a consultant. And many of you probably know about him because of his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, which came out in 1997. That book introduced his theory of disruptive innovation. Well, Christensen died on January 23rd, 2020. And we were thinking about this, and it reminded us of one of our favorite works of his. And our favorite work is not actually The Innovator's Dilemma, although that's really great and it was very influential. But we were thinking in particular about a 2010 article that published in Harvard Business Review titled, How Will You Measure Your Life? He uh, also wrote a book of the same title, and you can find out all about him, his life, and his work on his website, which is claytonchristensen.com, and we'll post a link to that in the show notes. Uh, So today we're talking about how will you measure your life? Um, So what are we going to talk about today, Chris? Yeah, so Ben, in this episode, we're going to talk about what does it mean to create a strategy for your life? Um, we're going to talk about ethics and integrity matter because people remember, you know, we all remember the people in our lives that lack that integrity and choosing your metrics for success. So how, how are you going to measure your success? And all of this applies to everyone, regardless of your career, what you do. Um, if you happen to be in business, we think these topics are of special relevance and are super important to remember. But, um, Ben, there was a quote in that article uh, that both resonated yeah. with you. Why don't you go ahead and read that now? Sure. So in this article, How Will You Measure Your Life, uh, Christensen wrote, Management is the most noble of professions if it's practiced well. No other occupation offers as many ways to help others learn and grow, take responsibility and be recognized for achievement, and contribute to the success of a team. More and more MBA students come to school thinking that a career in business means buying, selling, and investing in companies. That's unfortunate. Doing deals doesn't yield the deep rewards that come from building up people. Uh, End quote. I just think that's such an amazing way to think about things, and it really resonates with how I think about leadership and management. I know it resonates with how you view uh, leadership and management and really even the work that we do with companies. Right. Yeah. The, you know... When you're out in the business environment, either with our consulting clients, our executives that we coach, in the military, all those places, some of the biggest times in my life have been when people have taken the time to develop me, right? But one of the things I see in all those environments is people are focused on get to work, do the job, try to get the promotion so Bill or Nancy doesn't get it, you know, mm-hmm. how, do, how do I drive this result? have this report. And it's no wonder that that's the case, because generally, that's how, you know, performance reviews and how managers view this guy gets results. Mm -hmm. But the main part of this life, in my view, is actually building up other people, you know, having individuals at all levels of the organization, it doesn't have to be leadership or managers that build each other up. Um, That can be both encouragement, um, but also having something in your life, a skills, 
knowledge, abilities, and like integrity in a way in which you live your life that adds to the lives around you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just important to pause and think about these questions that we're going to raise today in the episode uh, earlier rather than later. You know, these are questions that sometimes I, I think arise at, you know, towards the end of people's careers, maybe once people retire. And, uh, you know, it's great to be thinking about these at any stage, but I think it's it's particularly important when you're perhaps earlier on or mid-career um, because you can make some course corrections. And these types of um, ways of thinking and these types of questions that we're going to talk about today oftentimes can influence your decision-making about what types of jobs to take or perhaps uh, even more prevalent, like how you're going to uh, behave within your current role. So let's start off with this first part, which is uh, what does it mean to create a strategy for your life? Yeah, Ben, I always like to think of the backwards planning thing here. You know, start <laughs> with the end in mind, right? Right. Now, one theme, you know, these and these articles tend to do well on LinkedIn and Facebook where, you know, the top five regrets of the dying or, mm-hmm. you know, the, all these themes about looking back. And it's generally about the regrets. And I think that's, you know, that's not bad. You know, it's here's a signpost. Hey, you whippersnappers, pay attention, right? <laughs> um, but we can't end up somewhere um, if we you know, it's unlikely we're going to end up there where we want to be on accident. So mm-hmm. we do, like you said, need to have a strategy for your life. And, you know, one of those things start with the end in mind. Um, what, what would you want on your epitaph? Or when you're wow. sitting on a porch, you know, you're too old to walk anywhere. What memories and things do you want to have in your life and reflections as you look back? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of this is, you know, thinking about the end in mind and the end being the fact that uh, last time I checked, the mortality rate is 100%. <laughs> so we we are all going to die at some point. And uh, how do you want to be remembered? Um, how do you want, you know, like you said, what types of memories do you want to have? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? And, you know, part of the uh, thrust that Christensen gets at in this article is he's saying, you know, we do all this stuff in business where we think about, for example, your strategy, how you're going to compete and win, how you're going to create a vision and a mission that everyone can get behind and that are motivational and so forth. Uh, And, you know, so we do these for organizations. Um, but you know, there's probably some value in thinking about what is your vision? What do you want to aspire to become as well as your mission? What is your personal reason for existence, uh, for your life? Right. Um, yeah, I think that's good. So, you know, one of the things for me is also this idea of like mortality salience. Um, yeah. Right. So that, you know, like you said, the fatality rates, a hundred percent, or the mortality rates, a hundred percent. So, you know, for, for me, you know, I grew up as a person of faith. Uh, I'm no longer a person of faith. So one of the things that really drives me is my view that after this earth, that's it for me. So mm-hmm. a big driver is, I, this is the time I have. I need to be a good steward of that for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Ben, you've had some unique experiences uh, around some of that mortality salience. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, one one thing that I have is I have a daily reminder of mortality 
in that uh, my backyard has a cemetery right behind it. So <laughs> yeah, I'm always. <laughs> and you've been you've been to my house many times. You know you know it's it's there beautiful. It's, it's, it's a historical it cemetery. Um, yeah. It's 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 uh it, but it's, it's funny because it actually kind of for some people like it weirds them out like we've had um you know people are like oh there's a cemetery in your backyard and I'm like yeah there's a cemetery in my backyard and uh you know the joke I always use is you know it's the best part of town everybody's dying to get in here right right um, well, but, uh, <laughs> and, or <laughs> it's okay my kids are already weird <laughs> yeah. so um but but it is a reminder that hey like this is not permanent right. And whether or not you believe in an afterlife or not, um, that, you know, matters for how you behave here, right? It really does matter what kind of life you have. Uh, you know, so that's one reminder that I have on a regular basis. Um, in this article that we're talking about today, Christensen actually, it's just kind of, it's kind of interesting given that he died, uh, you know, um, not too long ago here at the, the end of January 2020. In that article, he actually mentions that, you know, that he was diagnosed recently with cancer and so forth. Um, and, you know, that article came out 10 years ago. So he was obviously thinking about those things then, and he probably had some incidents that happened, you know, with regards to his health that gave him this mortality salience, which is this idea, this awareness that, you know, mortality salience is about this, the psychological awareness that you, you're not going to be around forever. Um, you know, I also had an incident about two years ago uh, when I was, so, I, you know, this is just kind of one of those events that reminds you of things and uh, reminds you of your own mortality and, and what could have happened, right? Uh, so I was driving at night on an interstate and uh, just out of nowhere, uh, something smashed into my windshield. Um, I was driving probably about 70 miles an hour and um, I was in the left lane and somehow I, I very quickly uh, navigated into the median and when I kind of struggled to open my eyes, because there was glass in my eyes, uh, I just saw this huge piece of metal like shoved through the windshield, just like right down. It actually came through the windshield right in front of me, hit me in the arm, uh, and sprayed a bunch of glass in my eyes. It's so you know, crazy. It, I, it we was, got we got to post the pictures, Ben. We got to post. You, maybe we will. I mean, I have photos because I took a picture of it like right away. I was like, "Holy smokes, this is crazy," um, and. You know, if that thing would have come through at a different angle, it would have hit me right in the face. And so, you know, I my, I had some corneal abrasions, you know, which actually recover, uh, you know, in about a week. So my eyes got better and I'm fine and everything. But it's one of these kind of wake up moments. It was like, oh, my gosh, like, um, you know, life is not uh, just something that you should take for granted. And actually, you know, prior to that drive, I had been uh, talking with some people about, you know, the idea of starting uh, my own consulting firm, because, you know, I had been consulting for a number of years, but wanted to kind of do my own thing. And, uh, you know, after that happened, I was like, yeah, we're doing this. <laughs> Let's make this happen. Um, and then, you know, uh, in May of 2018 was when we actually founded our firm, uh, Indigo Anchor. And, you know, part of my motivation was like, hey, this, this stuff is short. I'm just going to go for this and and do this. And it's been fantastic ever since. But, um, you know, I don't think you have to have those types of experiences necessarily to 
um, you know, to be aware of your own potential or your own, own eventual demise. Um, yeah, you don't have but... <laughs> to stick your hand in the burner to know that it's hot and will hurt you, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, but I think part of our what we're talking about here today is about having that awareness and having uh, taking the time to think about you know what is my strategy for life? What is my vision? What is my mission? Um, what is the meaning that I want to um, have? Right. And, you know, one of the first things, you know, that's part of your strategy needs to be allocating your resources, right? You know, there's an opportunity cost. So let's say if I wanted to stop right now and get my PhD in Sumerian pottery, which, I mean, I guess that's a thing, right? So um, (laughs) no offense to Sumerian pottery experts everywhere. Um, But there would be an opportunity cost. I'd have right. to move out of my house because on a, you know, graduate stipend, you know, I couldn't, and that those would be earnings I wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember some conversations I had actually with, um, so I had a really interesting first sergeant. Um, well, he was my platoon sergeant, and then he was my uh, first sergeant. Uh, one uh, prior, Dr. Pryor, uh, And he's actually in charge of the USDA lab down at Auburn University. So that's not, that's something unique about the guard. You really get odd people in odd spots. So normally, you know, you don't have a sergeant first class or something with a PhD, but (laughs) he, he was a big mentor for me in a lot of ways. And I remember, and it was so great that he'd even take the time to share his life in these ways, but you know, I was, you know, got out of grad school, I'm doing work, and I'm having to start to make choices, because I used to having enough time before kids to get all my reading done, do mm-hmm. some hobbies. And, and he really talked about like, hey, you're as you become more valuable in different ways, you're gonna have to start making decisions of this over that. Right. And that really, I was really sad to hear that. But he was right. I mean, it came very quickly having to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't do everything. Yeah. You just can't. And every moment that you spend doing something is a moment that you're not doing something else. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's a simple statement, but it's a profound idea, this idea of opportunity cost, that whenever you're working on something, you're spending time on some project or, or in some job or whatever, you're not doing something else. And I think it's important for us to realize that in terms of what, what we're giving up when we're saying yes to things. Uh, and part of this, I think, is just by, you know, being present with those around you. Um, you know, a big part of when people are looking back at their lives and maybe having some of those regrets as they're dying, one of them is about, you know, not spending the time to uh, foster and maintain interpersonal relationships. I mean, we even know from the science on aging and, uh, you know, uh, dementia and so forth, that having a good interpersonal uh, network and interacting with people on a regular basis is is really healthy, um, physically, mentally, uh, and it, it just makes for a more meaningful life. Right. And we don't get to pick where we're born, right? Um, so, you know, oh man, I wasn't born in some like high end Silicon Valley enclave where I had a, you know, (laughs) chef and a scribe and had fencing, you know, that, that doesn't matter. Actually, the most interesting stories come from all over the place. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but being present with those around you allows you 
to learn, to grow, to thrive, and to build those relationships that will sustain you through your life. Um, right. T- time's not on your side, right? The Rolling Stones, <laughs> <laughs> they, they were wrong, right? Oh, the Stones were wrong. I love the Stones. But yes, I think they were wrong about this one. Uh, time is generally not on our side. Uh, it, it keeps on going. And I think actually Bruce Springsteen probably had a little bit more correct when, when he said that time slips away, leaves you with nothing, mister, but boring stories of glory days, right? Ah, um, we're yeah. dating ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, hey, we both have kids. Um, I got this yeah. Dr. Seuss quote here. Uh, how did it get so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? So thanks for that, Dr. Seuss. So, you know, Ben, let's talk about ethics. Integrity matter because people remember, right? Sure, sure. So we talked about, you know, what a strategy is for your life and why that matters. Let's turn our attention to this idea of ethics and integrity. And I think one way for us to think about this, obviously, this is not a philosophy course, uh, you know, <laughs> millennia of, you know, thought has been uh, dedicated to these ideas about what is truth, what is right, what is wrong, where do these things come from? Um, what is you know, ethics even, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and we're not going to, you know, get into that too deeply, because I think that's a, that's a you know, that's maybe a, a series of of a thousand podcasts that someone else should probably do. But you know, from our experience, and also just from kind of uh, how we think about things, I, I, we can start with this idea of where ethics come from, right? Right. Right. Yeah. And so you know, we there are a bunch of different ways in which we develop our ethical understanding about what's right and what's wrong. Um, certainly starts in early childhood, right? Yeah. You know it. Poor kids, you know, they're just bebopping, trying to do whatever they want to do. And there's these daggone parents that keep guiding them or scolding them or directing <laughs> them. It's got to well, be I mean, miserable but, to be but, a young child knowing nothing, right? Right. Well, I mean, children are not, I mean, when, you, when you're just born, you aren't really equipped with the, the knowledge and skills to interact in society well. And so it is necessary, in my view, to help to civilize the little rascals um, in a way to help them understand how to make decisions, uh, you know, what right and wrong is. And, you know, we also get our ethics from some of our life experiences, um, things that happen to us, uh, certainly from our religious beliefs. Uh, you know, so that's still a very big part of how I think about the world and what I ascribe to in terms of my values and my beliefs. Um our codes of ethics that we may have, you know, and some of this even comes from, uh, you know, speaking of thinking of codes of ethics. So for example, you know, you and I are both in the military and, you know, we have codes of conduct and things that we, and core values that are, are really quite robust and strong and are reemphasized on a regular basis. Um, and you know, that, that is ideally, and I think it does work to some degree helps to, um, create a common platform for understanding these ideas of how to make decisions and what is right and wrong. Yeah, you know, it, and we have discussions with others, mm-hmm. um, which is super important. And one of these things that's interesting is all of this stuff, and we'll talk about how culture becomes, you know, accidental culture. You know, it just kind of emerges out of the primordial ooze of nothingness, right? <laughs> you know, so 
you know, most of us, as in our childhood, did not have uh, director of philosophies from Duke University you know, right. raising us, right? Um, right? Our life experience may be insular. Um, you have some major horrible life experience that changes how you view the world, but maybe the only person to have it, and maybe you draw the wrong conclusions there, mm -hmm. right? And I use the term wrong loosely. Um your religious beliefs, those may change. You know, if you were raised, um, you know, one faith, sometimes you change your faith. Uh, code of ethics, those could be really awesome. Um, but maybe you're in the mob and, you know, yeah. maybe that's not the best code of ethics, right, um, to have. Um, but then some of these ideas when we start to, so those are kind of like amorphous. They grow out of kind of a collective roots wisdom. Um, mm -hmm. oftentimes, but, you know, we can actually start to reach to the pros too. Um, uh, we could look at ethical philosophers, um, classic, uh, ethical dilemmas to explore. Like, you know, th there's a train, right. And you are the, you can change the track, right. And there's a hundred people that will die. Um, if it keeps going the one way, but if you pull it, like your kid's going to get run over by the train on the other. That, you know, that's right. one of the 101 ones. Um, but looking at those ethical dilemmas and we're just sitting with our, our buddies that maybe don't study philosophy or something, um, we may not come to the best uh, best thoughts on those, right? So, you know, just making a stab at, you should probably take a look at some ethical philosophy Um there's people way smarter than me. You know, I read, I was like, man, I would never come up with those ideas on my own. <laughs> you know, maybe start where the conversations left off rather than reinventing the will on your own. Yeah. Um, that could be good. And, th and then the final idea is like our experiences and organizations. Um, so we look at what the ethics, how business gets done around here. Um, and a lot of people that I see just kind of adopt the mores of the broader organization. Mm. Right. Which, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. Right. So if the mores of, a, of the broader organization are ones that are, um, you know, have kind of gone off the rails over time, uh, it can be very powerfully, you know, it can, it can influence you and you can start to believe that that is the way that things should be done. Um, and so that's something we'll talk about later. Like, how do you disrupt that? And what, what kinds of things does that take? Uh, but what's interesting is that these, you know, the sense of ethics thinks of what it's right and wrong and how do you live your life? Uh, all the things we're talking about here today, uh, over time, they become part of your identity to some degree, part of your sense of who you are, your sense of self, or your preferred sense of self. Like, this is who I want to be. So in my decision-making and in my actions, I'm going to try to close that gap between who I really am and my actual behaviors and who I want to become, this aspirational thing. And that can be, that can be useful, right? Um, and because we have this ingrained in our identity and who we think we are, uh, you know, there are things that maybe you do or don't do simply because of who you are, right? Or, or who you have become or are becoming, uh, you know, when I think about myself, like there are certain things that I just would never do. Um, there are some things that I would always do. Uh, in, with regard to how I interact with others, decisions I would make in business and so forth, um, because they're that rooted in my uh, sense of self and things that I've developed over time. Right. And, you know, that brings us back to that same idea, which is sometimes you need to examine your identity against an external criteria, mm. right? Right. You may need to change. So 
if you've just accidentally evolved, you know, maybe it's only, maybe your parents were the only ones that fed something in, into your stuff. Um, I think about that uh, scripture, you know, raise up a child in the way that they should go. But, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, I wasn't raised by pro philosophers or pro people of faith or, you know, so sometimes it's great to reach out for that external thing and, and examine, do I need to change? You know, if you were raised in the mob, right, mm-hmm. you know, you could, it wouldn't take too much to look at moral philosophy and stuff and come up with, you know, maybe a life of crime's not the best way to go about this thing. Right, right. And, and so, you know, there's kind of this downside to always, you know, thinking about, I should always be authentic to who I am, because what if who you are or, you know, some of the ideas that you maybe you've ascribed to as you've grown up, what if some of those are wrong or what if those are some of those are Ugh. really damaging to other people? Um, you know, and I think, you know, so the mob is actually an interesting example because you could think of, yeah, organized crime um, and, and breaking the law all the time. Most of us would probably agree it's not a great way to go, um, but they you know, at least from what I what I watched in the movies, and I, some what I know, also just you know from how the I, mob we've done operates. no consulting en- engagements no. with the mob. Well, yeah, let's make that clear. <laughs> and 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 neither of us have ever been in the uh, uh, the mob. But um, they, I mean, they do actually have some really strong ethical principles around, for example, family and loyalty and friendship and those types of things. Um, it's just kind of twisted, right? And uh, you know, so but you can think of people who grew up in a uh, maybe an abusive environment, right? Where they got sure. this really twisted idea of what what a um, what a proper relationship looks like, and and should and what should that, that should entail, or maybe some sort of you know a cult of some sort. Um, so I think you know we we do need to as we go through our lives, you know, continually ensure that what we're doing and being true to ourselves or whatever that we're actually being true to something that is uh, external to us. I think that that's helpful. Um, and that's where, you know, so for my example, um, a lot of what I would be comparing myself with would be um, things from my religious faith, right? So I'm a practicing Catholic, and that's, I like to think of it, and I've joked with you about it, like the, the Catholic Church is actually a, a uh, perfectly designed behavioral modification system that if you do it the way it's supposed to be, um, it, it, it actually does a lot of really good for yourself um, in terms of examining, you know, who you are, what you're doing. Um, being critical of your own, uh, you know, wants and desires and actions and making course corrections along the way. So um, I I think there's a lot of value in realizing that, yeah, just because you really feel strongly about something, um, you you probably need to sometimes question yourself a little bit. Right. And that's one thing I really respect about you, Ben, as a secular person, as you really do live out your faith. And I see that in the lives of um, both your children and how your family life is conducted. You you guys have an amazing family, um, one that I aspire to be more like, actually. Um, one thing I also want to bring up is this idea when we talk about, you know, we get our ethics either accidentally, we absorb them from maybe some good examples or bad examples, or we, you know, we go the pro route as a student of ethical philosophy. Um, as that become part of our identity, um, and in the book, Difficult Conversations, we did a podcast on that, um, on difficult conversation. Identity is one of those key things mm-hmm. that people will throw their arms up or run screaming out the door when you start talking about identity. So if you want to grow in this area, if you want to examine yourself against some kind of external criteria, right? 
-hmm. just know that that's going to be sensitive for you automatically, right? right? So you you might, and I hate to use the term because uh, it's just kind of charged, but you might want to find a safe place, right, mm -hmm. to explore these items. Make sure that you're with people you can trust that have your best interest in mind um, as you're starting to do that stuff. Right, because some of those fundamental questions about identity are, you know, am I competent? Am I a good person? Am I worthy of love? Like these, these are pretty big questions. And when we start, we like to feel secure about things. And sometimes we will, we can be very good at tricking ourselves into believing that we are doing the right thing. Uh, and, you know, when that, when that foundation starts to get shaken, it's very helpful and appropriate to be around those people who have your best interests in mind. Um, you know, when we do a lot of work with, uh, executives and with organizations, uh, one thing that we, you and I come across, um, with regard to, especially more as you ascend the corporate hierarchy, so to speak, or whatever, uh, you know, people in those positions, if they don't have the moral compass that they, uh, need to guide themselves in those situations, it's really problematic, right? You, you this is something where I feel like you've really got to build that moral compass along the way so that you're ready when you're in those positions of power and authority. Right. That's, I always say that you got to, well, you know, when you, to use the war example, you know, how, how much should you work out before deployment? I mean, all the workouts probably, you know, you don't want to be in a clutch situation and not able to sprint a quarter mile as fast as you need to sprint a quarter yeah. mile. And, and some of that mentality can come to there. Now, does that mean that you don't ever binge watch some Netflix, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's got to be some balance here, right? We're ta we're in allocating our resources in an appropriate way, and we got to take care of ourselves while we do that. But there will be times if you don't develop a strong moral compass um, while you're young, it's never too late to start, right? But mm -hmm. if there there can be times when temptations and the demands of life will exceed your ability to navigate in a moral way, or your practiced, disciplined self-control. And mm -hmm. they actually, like in business, we call it the Bathsheba syndrome. So Ben, what's the Bathsheba syndrome? Yeah, so the Bathsheba syndrome comes from this, uh, this article that was published in the Journal of Business Ethics uh, a number of years ago. Uh, and it describes the phenomenon that occurs uh, when you are in a position of authority. Right. So and this is and the idea here is that, you know, good people can end up doing bad things, not necessarily just because there's, you know, hyper competition or they have goals that are just somehow kind of get misaligned with what's right. Um, but it actually can happen due to your own success. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. and what they describe in this article, um, and I guess we, maybe we should go back and say, who's, who the heck is Bathsheba? So if you um, haven't read uh, you know, some of the, the Old Testament in the Bible, Bathsheba was um, the object of affection, we'll say, for King David. And King David uh, basically That's orchestrated... That's like the least juicy way to say it. <laughs> so let, let me fix this here. So David, and I'll probably screw it up so I don't remember oh it right, but... But we'll put a link to the to the Bible verse in the show notes. But <laughs> as I remember it, David's sitting on the roof, right? And he looks over and he sees this lady bathing and is like, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he and he finds out he's actually the wife of yeah, go ahead, Ben. Uh, Uriah, I believe, right? So yeah, Uriah is her husband, and he 
essentially orchestrates his murder. Uh, so there's a battle going on. He, this guy's in in um, in the army, or, or you know, and so basically David orchestrates for him to be at the front lines, and he knew that he was just going to get slaughtered, and so you know he did that so that he could uh, make his move on Bathsheba. Um, and so it's like the, straight uh, out, like a, it could be a modern soap opera story. I, right, you know? I know. Right. Uh, and so this idea is that, okay, he was in a position of power and authority. Um, he was a very successful, uh, leader up to that point. And the idea is that as we find ourselves in these positions of power and authority, there are some different uh, benefits and some disadvantages that happen there. So for example, at the personal level, um, you know, as a person with more authority, you tend to have more privileged access. You start to have uh, the ability to know things about different things that are going on. You start to get more status and influence. Uh, you maybe have uh, a bigger network, so to, so to speak. And this could be a good thing, right? Um, but it also can start to make you feel like you have this inflated sense of your own worth, right? And this is a negative, your inflated belief in your personal ability. And you start to, uh, you know, start to have this unbalanced personal life. You start to have this really inflated ego. Um, it certainly can be stressful. And, uh, that, that's just comes due to the fact that you were being, you were successful in your role at the organizational level. Uh, when you are more senior in an organization, you start to have more control over resources. You know, you have fewer people looking over your shoulder. Um, there's not as much direct supervision. You have the ability to kind of set the agenda and to control resources and decision-making, how things happen. And you also can experience kind of a loss of strategic focus where you are, um, you know, getting complacent about things. And uh, so, you know, what what I think we should take away from this idea of the Bathsheba syndrome is that you need to be careful as you ascend in an organization's hierarchy and you start to have more access to information, more control over resources and outcomes. Uh, you start to you know believe your own uh, <laughs> you know uh, tales that you tell yourself about how great you are. You need to realize that you need to you've got to stay humble. You've got to surround yourself with people who are going to give you the no kidding truth about what's right and what's wrong and where you might be going off the rails because um, you as a person are are ill-equipped to do that on your own. Right. Just don't take a personal bias to yourself. It's extremely unlikely you're immune, right? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody else falls on this. Don't think I won't fall on this. Be right. aware. They'd be super great. Like one of the things I think about, you know, when we had the big economic fallout from the mortgage crisis and all that stuff was this idea, this terminology came about moral hazard, right? And I remember hearing interviews like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't share, uh, we, maybe we shouldn't sell arcane derivatives that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, well, now we're going to start teaching our young minted MBAs what moral hazard is. And, you know, as somebody who grew up, you know, Boy Scouts was a big part of my life growing up and who grew up in the church and, you know, these kinds of morality plays, biblical lessons, these kinds of things were so key to starting me off on my moral journey and ethical journey. I'm just like, you know, what the heck? You know, how do you <laughs> how do you get through college and graduate school often at top elite universities and you have no flipping clue? 
what a moral hazard is. And Mm -hmm. it's because we accidentally come on these things. It's not deliberate in us developing a moral compass and ethics, deciding what kind of person I want to be. I see this all the time with managers. And I've seen some, I don't want to be doom and gloom. I've seen some amazing people of ethics and integrity, people who, you know, just always freaking do the right thing. And they're like a beacon of light. But I see this all the time. They're just so, uh, so obsessed with winning, so obsessed with, you know, metrics, getting promoted, that they totally miss this idea of moral hazard, right? And which is just like, uh, we see this in companies all the time. They're focused on that quarter's results that they don't build sustaining success because they're missing out on the strategic thing. So don't be that manager, right? Let's, you know, not be accidental and choosing how we decide what is wrong. We got to chart our course. So great. Select from a better buffet of choices you know, if you got a bunch of numbskull friends that don't know right or wrong or aren't <laughs> philosophy pros, maybe that's not your only buffet of choices, right? Yeah. You know, we can, you know, I love that that quote, stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Mm-hmm. Start where the conversation's left off. And if you're not a big reader, I'm a big advocate of reading. However, I know, um, you know, and teaching my kids to read and, and watching struggles there, reading doesn't come easy for everybody, you know, I can't tell you how many CEOs I know that must do Audible because they just struggle with the reading piece. That's fine. Podcasts are great. Just just find you got to get the information out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think getting outside of your own bubble is really important. So you mentioned, you know, uh, if you're surrounded by a bunch of numbskulls, guess what? You're probably going to turn into one of them in some way. Uh, you, you, we, we are social creatures. We oftentimes will, uh, you know, adapt to the people who are around us. Um, the people who are around us and the ways in which they behave start to inform what we think is normal and right or appropriate. And, you know, that's why, uh, you know, one of the, you know, when I think about parenting, for example, I think one of the most important things that you can do is teaching your children how to choose good friends. Um, oh, because, so you know, perfect. Yes. yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's, it go, it, this follows you into adulthood. Like you surround yourselves with people who are, you know, kind of teetering on the edge, edge of unethical behavior or, or, you know, doing things that, that seem a little bit off, you're going to start to think in the ways that they do. And so it's very important to surround yourselves with, uh, with people who are, are people of integrity and, uh, and have this, you know, at least I have some, a questioning attitude and an awareness and a non-accidental approach towards developing character and, and ethics. And, and once you practice this for a while, and I'll talk about kind of what the beginning of that journey looks like, but once you practice for a while, you know, we started off with that quote at the beginning, one of the best things in life is developing those around you. You can get those skills in difficult conversations and start to pull up the ethics, you know, pull up the ethics of the person to your left and right. Hey, mm-hmm. Fred, we can do better than that. Hey, Fred, that's not ha- part of our values and how we do business around here. Um, super, super important. There's not a lot of people that can do that well, and it's because they haven't started that journey. So Right, right. Yeah, so intent matters. That's what. So when you start this journey you got to kind of realize, at least for me, I said, ooh, I need a serious upgrade. I need a serious upgrade to some of the ways <laughs> I think about these things, you know? I, I, 
I was doing pretty good compared to my friends, compared to the people of my left and right and different social settings and stuff. Um, but that's okay. I really think intent matters. So inaction itself is an action, you know, so mm -hmm. you got to start making moral choices right now. But good intentions need to be um, backed by better yeah. actions over what, times. What's that that one quote that good intention, uh, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> or, or if we want to keep mining the Bible here, you know, faith without works is dead. That's right. Um, that's, that's you right. you got to start backing this up, but don't be scared because I see some people, you know, like, I'm just scared I'm going to say or do the wrong thing. Hey, buddy, you're in this game whether you want to or not. Check yourself. Make sure you have a good intent, that intent being to grow on your, you know, kind of moral compass journey and, and set out. Uh, that's that's this idea of like deliberate living versus conformity. Um, you know, being very specific about those those steps you take, which, you know, rests under that talking about allocating your resources. Mm -hmm. Right. And so part of this is just about having awareness that you are making choices on a daily basis. And these little, these small decisions you make about, you know, what you're, how you're going to spend your time, the people you're going to associate with, uh, all of these things add up. And, uh, you know, if we're not careful, we'll just kind of end up doing what's easy, what's popular, um, and really just kind of conforming to, uh, whatever the, the kind of median level of behavior is. Uh, and I, I just think that that's not really the best way to go. Right. Yeah. Like you don't want to be the guy at Enron that was like, oh yeah, you know, you're at your next job interview. Oh yeah. I worked at Enron. Yeah. We, we just drove off the cliff together. Yeah. We were yeah. friends cool. the whole way. Happy hours were great. And you know, what's interesting. So going back to the, how will you measure your life article by Clay Christensen, he actually mentions in the article, he said, you know what? I knew, I think it was Jeff Skilling, um, one of the guys mm. at Enron. He said, I knew him. He was in my Harvard Business School class, and he was a good dude, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, if you're not careful, like, you can become the person who makes those terrible decisions. Uh, you know, the, the, you already mentioned this earlier, but the minute that you start thinking that you are immune to being the, you know, that person uh, is the minute when you start going down the wrong path, in my view. Uh, because, you know, evil is not uh, something, it's not a line between people, right? The, the choice between right and wrong, it's actually a division within each one of us that we all have the capacity um, to, to be evil. We all have the capacity to be good. Um, you know, and I think at least thinking that way can be helpful and give us a, a wariness about our own behavior. That's right. And if you think this is an exhortation to the path of better living, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're no, just going to own that right now. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, the path the path to righteousness is hard, but it's very rewarding, um, or, you know, or to, to virtue. And uh, it's interesting. It just reminds me of, um, so there's a, a great book by Russ Roberts. He's the um, host of a great podcast, too, called Econ Talk. I'd go check it out. But he wrote a book um, a couple years ago called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but, you know, he, what he talks about in that book... I hear some groaning it, from some people with certain economic perspectives. <laughs> well, I, I challenge them to read this book because, uh, you know, Adam Smith taught, you know, he's best known as kind of the father of economics and the father of capitalism uh, from his book, The Wealth of Nations and so forth. But in this book by Russ Roberts, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, he focuses instead on a lesser known but very important book by Adam Smith called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in that book, um, you know, 
Adam Smith describes how uh, all of us, all people, desire not only to be loved, but also to be lovely, right? We want people's respect. We want people's admiration, but we also want to feel like we can deserve it. And then he talks about how there's two paths towards achieving that. One is through wealth and fame, and the other is through a life of virtue. And then he discusses how the, the life of virtue is the better path, which is very interesting because okay, this is the father of capitalism, right? And he's talking hard about hard to how, argue with that. Yeah, if you want right? to be a lovely person, be a person of virtue. Right, right. Um, and awesome. you know, this goes into how you're going to measure your life, how you're going to allocate your time and resources, what you're going to pay attention to, uh, you know, eth ethics and integrity. These things really do matter. And I think this brings us to kind of some ideas even around leadership. Right. So, um, you know, one example I'm thinking of, or you've got to make a decision as a CEO, right? Mm -hmm. And there's some pressure on several sides of an issue, and neither one of them's necessarily illegal, right? Right. H how do you choose? Do you, you know, do you cave to pressure from the board of directors because they think that you need to take this certain strategy, um, but you think it has moral hazard or, you know, there's going to be things, this isn't just massively like some Enron debacle, um, but having that clear moral compass makes those decisions. It's just like snap, 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 so much easier to make. So Ben, yeah. let's let's talk about well, choosing some metrics for success. Well, be before we go there, I just think that you know you need to prepare yourself in those leadership situations to be a social deviant when necessary. You may yes. need to really stand out from the crowd. That's essentially what leadership is. It's about you know moving in a different direction <laughs> a lot of times, and uh, you just love it that there's something positive associated with being a social deviant. I think right. That's why you. Love yeah, it. I mean, um, so many of our <laughs> engagements though were brought in to to change things. Right. right? And right. it, yeah. and people can look at us, especially when we're dealing with toxic cultures, when we're, when mm -hmm. we're in it, brought into an organization, like the culture top is toxic and everything doing the right thing in those cultures yeah. can seem deviant. Right. And that's what, and that's what, you know, in the military, we call this moral courage, right? Having there's physical courage, which is like, I'm going to, you know, Go out on that convoy, even though it's the same route that people got blown up on last week, right? And you, you and I have experience there um, and similar types of experiences. But then there's also moral courage where I'm going to stand up and I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to dissent when necessary, even if everybody is thinking one way. I'm going to say the unpopular thing because I think it's right. And what's interesting is that we know from a lot of experiments in social psychology that uh, when one person dissents, uh, you will oftentimes get other people to agree with you, right? Because there are other people who are self-censoring and not speaking up. But once they hear one person kind of break that, um, you know, that, that veil of, of unanimity, um, then, uh, you know, people will, will start to think differently. So, yeah. And if anyway. you have an underdeveloped moral compass, it's going to be harder to break ranks, right? Yep. But if yep. you have a really well-defined more moral compass, you really know what needs to happen and, and you can make those decisions and it, it's a beacon to others honestly yes great so now we can let's 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 move on to this last part let's talk about you know choosing your metrics for success what does success look like um you know so obviously there's a lot of co <laughs> common types of metrics <laughs> what are oh, some of the man. common ones we see that people kind of the default mode the unthinking path for what what it means to be successful uh, how, look at my salary. 
You know, yeah. he had like, oh, I'm doing so well, six figures. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I got promoted. I got this title. You know, um, I achieved whatever by whatever age. Oh, yeah. Um, what it says, like the 40 by 40, you know, towns yeah, will do that. 40 top right. CEOs or under 40 or something. Ugh. Sure, sure. Or, you know, I, I see this a lot. It just comes down to like owning certain things. Um you know, ha- having a certain type of car or other, you know, things related to your home or whatever. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to owning awesome stuff. Like there are some amazing, you know, cars and homes and other types of technology and so forth that can be really great in your life. Um, but there's a reason to have those things. And I think there's reasons not to, right? If, if that's kind of what your metric for success is, um, I, I just think that that's problematic. Yeah, you know, I see this all the time. It's, you know, if you really want that set of golf clubs, great. But if you're like, I'm buying this so I can go show Billy and Tommy and Susan, look at this set of golf clubs. It's like a million bucks. You know, I don't know. That's probably not the right headspace. <laughs> it's probably, well, and, and you know what? It's probably not going to actually improve your golf game that much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that I just drive the cart, you know, and buy the beer. So, uh <laughs> What's the other one? Uh, trophy spouses. Mm, yeah. You know, I oh, mean, and my kids look at my attractive spouse and my kids who went to the perfect colleges and got the perfect job titles. Yeah. And I mean, it's great. Like... Well, I mean, and it's great to be proud of your kids and to aspire for your kids to do good things. But, you know, I think it's about the intent here that the intent matters. And, um, you know, are you doing these things just so that you can brag about them or not? Uh, you know, another one I see are kind of like the, the epic vacations where it's like, oh, we did X, Y, or Z. And it was like, um, you know, we, we had our own butler in this thing on the Amalfi coast and stuff. Now that's, that's great. That could be really fun. And I would love to do that too. Um, and, and, you know, but it's, it's about the, uh, kind of the, the social comparison that can occur where it's like, I'm doing this because so that I can, so that I can, you know, get the picture for the Instagram, right. Or, you know, basically brag about it to everybody else. Um, and, and we see this all the time. If you, if you notice it, right, these are the the metrics essentially that people are using for their own self-worth for their own success. And, uh, I, we, you and I have talked about how this is kind of the unthinking path, the unintentional path, the default mode that we go through sometimes. Right. And it's also another idea of this idea of reflected sense of self or other validated sense of self. Mm. Um, if you don't have a solid core of who you are, which I will say is brutal to develop, I'm still working on it every day. Right. Mm-hmm. But, it, um, you know, one of the unique skills, uh, that we develop as humans initially is this ability to self-soothe. Right. Mm. And we develop that when, you know, you start teaching your baby to go to sleep on their own. Right. And then you go in the X room and you just want to like cry because you can't go to sleep because they're figuring out. But eventually that child learns to self-soothe itself. And that's such an important emotional skill to have as an adult person, right? Especially Mm -hmm. when you, so let's talk about this idea of how that plays out. So we know how to self-soothe, but very quickly we learn to trick other people into soothing us. Oh, I just (laughs) look so horrible. Oh, no, honey, you look great. And you get maybe a jolt of other validation, but you know that 
that other validation isn't real, right? Mm. You know deep down that you tricked that person. But we build up these complex maps in our minds of other people need to validate us to feel okay, rather than digging in, growing up as a person, developing that moral compass, and being able to be self-validated. So the two skills there is like, can you self-validate, right? And then can you self-soothe the inevitable disappointment you will cause the numbskulls that will disapprove of your ethical decision-making? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, this goes back to this idea of kind of differentiation and being able to stand on your own two feet, two feet with your own decisions and, and own your, your decisions and own your own leadership path. Um, and this is kind of, you know, it brings us to this idea of, we talk about the unintentional path towards uh, kind of choosing your metrics for success, but there is uh, an intentional path that you can take. And we would suggest is the preferred path. Be intentional yeah, if you, about the metrics. If you get your... Uh, you know, metrics for success from the numbskulls to your left and right, you know, oh, I'm not making as much money as Nancy or, uh, you know, <laughs> I haven't been a CEO of a fortune 500 by 36, you know, <laughs> you know, oh my God. But we see that all the time amongst highly motivated, hard charging people. I, I'm going to say that's the route to destruction. Ending up at the end of your life estranged from your family, probably. And just, not in a good place. You, you have yeah. a lot of stuff, but it'll be up. But like to Ben's point, the intentional path, it, it's it's hard, but rewarding. Right. And I think the first point that we can make here is about what does it mean to choose the intentional path for choosing metrics for your success is, uh, well, first of all, don't don't let Ben and Chris tell you what your metrics need to be. You need to be the one or anyone else for that matter, right? You need to be the one who's deciding what the metrics are. And I would suggest that don't just choose those ones that are necessarily popular. Uh, Don't become someone or pursue some goals only because someone else made you think that those are the most important aspects of life. Yeah. You know, I think of a dear friend of mine, uh, Mark Johnson, um, I think he's in New Mexico now is where he's living, but he was basically a classic scholars, uh, scholar at, um, St. John's college, which, you know, they do the great books curriculum. Right. And he's, he's teaching in the K through 12 environment. That guy was so smart, could have done anything, but that wasn't his metric for success. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I think he's got a croquet team started there. I mean, he's the kind of guy that looks great (laughs) in a cardigan. I mean, brilliant brilliant person right and yeah. he's he's running his own goals his life is thriving and vibrant right right because he took the the path of deliberate intention and thinking about um you know what what mattered for him right so i think the first thing is you need to be the one who decides your own metrics uh, and this brings us to this idea of of happiness. Like, I don't I don't really even know what that what happiness is. Uh, it's hard to define. Uh, but but I do do think, and I think there's some good, um, you know, philosophic and psychological thought that would suggest that just pursuing happiness is problematic um, if that's the only thing that you're seeking. Now, happiness is you know I think of it as drugs, right? When you're having. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. So, you know, when you seek ha- happiness for most people is this emotional state generated by a chemical reality in your person. Right. Uh-huh. And, you know, 
if you stay at a certain level of stimulation, you actually need more to maintain that same mental state. And I, I don't know of anybody who would say like, you should be on drugs a hundred percent of the time type right. thing. Like even the right. guys that, that support, you know, legalization and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I, I don't know any person I just really respect that would say like, you know, you know, you need to be on a happiness drug right now. If you need medications yeah. for diabetes, you know, we're not talking about that, but it, so don't, don't be a druggie for happiness. Like right. that's because it, yeah, it's not it, sustainable. It, it isn't. And because kind of what you're referring to there is that we habituate very quickly to certain levels of things that may give us happiness. And then it doesn't do it anymore. It's, it's and, called hedonic adaptation. Yes. So, exactly. and we see research. So, you let's say you got a two hundred thousand dollar raise. I mean, that'd be a lot of money, right? And yeah, first few months you're like woohoo, but then you know right. after your fleet of Teslas and vacations, very quickly that two hundred grand doesn't do it for you anymore, right? Yeah, so you've you've tapped into something that's not sustainable. Just like a company that pursues an unsustainable strategy, you've pursued an unsustainable strategy for your life. That's right. And so a, a different path, maybe a more intentional path and one that's potentially more rewarding um, is, you know, the, the, the path of seeking meaning in your life. And, um, you know, again, it comes back to you need to decide what meaning is for you. What is your purpose? Um, and, you know, there's a great book. And we'll put a link to this in the, the show notes. But uh, if you haven't read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, uh, oh. He was a, Jew, you know, it's a great book. He was a Jewish Classic. psychiatrist. Yeah, he was a Jewish psychiatrist um, who was uh, uh, in the concentration camps during World War II, and he talks about, you know, even within that horrific of horrific experiences, how you know they were able to find moments of joy and meaning and beauty, um, and you know, going back to this idea of you need to be the one who decides what meaning is for you and pursue that because happiness will come as a byproduct thereof. Yeah. Like I, I can't think of a whole lot of happy moments during the first six weeks of either of my child. I mean, they were there, but it wasn't all happiness in the first six weeks of either of my kid's life, you know, the sleep <laughs> depravity and the what, <laughs> but it's tough. That gone it. There was a lot of meaning, yeah. right. You know, right. and it, that's awesome. Yeah, right. You know, I think another practical thing that you can do, uh, that we all can do, if you're going down this intentional path of of creating the metrics for success in your life, is, you know, do stuff for yourself that's going to make you more uh, able to contribute meaningfully to the world. Um, you know, we weren't born with an ability and with the knowledge or skills to necessarily uh, you know, contribute in a way. We have to do that through education, through our experiences. Um, but that can be a, a path towards developing some meaning and developing some purpose um, by developing yourself, right? Build your own knowledge and skills. Right. And, you know, for the philosophers out there, can you define meaning, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that'll be a key piece for you. How do you define meaning? Um, and then once you do that, can you share your perspective with the world? I, the poor lieutenants that I had and fellow captains back in the, you know, fourth Alabama was an infantry unit I was in. You're like, gosh, this guy will never shut up about reading this book, <laughs> listen to this podcast. Hey, did you read that article I texted you? But now a bunch of them are avid readers that are really exploring and they're infecting others with the knowledge cool. of 
better ways. That's you have that ripple effect on others. You will probably never address Davos, right? You know, very few people do. But that doesn't mean you can't have a massive ripple effect uh, impact just by developing yourself so you can contribute. Right. And that's because these human relationships that we develop over time, they really do matter. Uh, and I think it's important for us to consider how we want to be remembered by the people with whom we're interacting and remembering that every moment that you have with another person is an opportunity for you to, uh, the way I like to think of it is kind of breathe life into the situation or breathe death into the situation. Um, can you make that you know, a, a moment that, that matters or, uh, you know, is it something where you're, you're going to either kind of treat it passively or potentially even make it uh, a negative experience. And, you know, this isn't saying that I, I do this perfectly. Like this is a daily grind to try to be intentional about how you interact with people. Um, because our default mode isn't always to be, you know, this, this beacon of integrity to everybody. Um, so I think that's an important consideration. Yeah, and it's important to give yourself a break, you know, mm -hmm. especially for those, uh, for my friends who are rule followers, you know, oh, no, how I need to just do this, do this, do this. Oh, my gosh. You know, if you're into CrossFit or weightlifting, recovery is just as important as your training hour or two, right? Right. So, you know, I view it as phases. You dip into some growth mode. You go through a period of intense reading, reflection, growth. Then you take a little bit of a break to consolidate that learning, right? Right. Reflect on it. Practice those new skills. Um, you can't read a highly technical. We always say this. You can't hand somebody a book on boxing and tell them to go get in the ring. Well, let's say you had the most perfect book on boxing with every every little detail in it. You know, if you can do everything in this book, you can beat anybody in the world. You still got to read it piecemeal practice mm -hmm. piecemeal because that's just how we grow as humans so don't stress out about this just start your journey and make constant steps along the way yeah yeah and this is just such an important part of kind of internal leadership right being the leader you uh, need yourself to be uh, because that allows you to be the leader that others may need around you um, and you know i think kind of a final point on this idea of being intentional about what your metrics for success are, uh, know what you care about, right? This is a simple statement, but it's a, it's a big idea. And it's something that I think we all should, you know, pay attention to and think about on a, on a systematic basis. You know, what are your non-negotiables? What are your principles that you will not violate? And by having that level of, um, of kind of moral development, uh, you will be able to figure out what the right path is, right? You start with those values and what you want to become, and that, that will then inform your decision-making in a way that, uh, that gets you along that path. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's this idea of imposter syndrome, right? <laughs> Where people just, oh, I don't... Well, you don't have to worry about that so much if you have integrity, right? right. If you have a strong moral compass, you can go in and make the right decisions, which means when you don't know something, you don't fake it, right? You right. know, they say a professional knows what they know, knows what they don't know, and the difference, and knows mm -hmm. knows to go find out those things they don't know. You can be a professional and execute well because you're not an imposter when it comes to your integrity. You know, there's this idea, and tons of people can this a lot of ways, this idea of authentic leadership. Well, that authentic mm -hmm. leadership that can inspire others only comes about 
by being internally consistent and having those values that you can be consistent against. Right, right. If you're authentically a jerk, it's not going to help you. <laughs> well, <laughs> and unless you're like in one of those Wolf of Wall Street firms, right? So, right, right. So scoundrels sometimes do win. It's true. But I don't know how happy those scoundrels are at the end of their life after they've invested everything into a sham life. That's right. That's right. All right, Ben. So why don't you summarize what we talked about today? Sure. So today we talked about how will you measure your life, a topic that's important for all of us and certainly is particularly relevant with regard to our careers and how we interact with other people in organizations. We talked about what it means to create a strategy for your life. We talked about ethics and integrity and how they matter because people remember. And we talked finally about choosing your metrics for success. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.